Welcome to Asian Oscar Bait, the podcast where we give Hollywood hashtag no excuses to not make films with Asian leading roles. Every week, we're going to tell you a story about a real-life Asian from history who we think should be at the center of a movie. Quick correction about last week's episode. The amicus briefs mentioned at the end of the podcast were actually filed by Eric Yamamoto and Lorraine Benai, rather than Dale Minami. Before we get to the storytelling, let's discuss Asians in the media. This November, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences will present its annual Governor's Awards to four honorary recipients, Genius Film Editor Anne V. Coates, Veteran Casting Director Lynn Stallmaster, Documentary Legend Frederick Weissman, and, perhaps most surprisingly, acting icon Jackie Chan. The Hong Kong-born Jackie Chan rose to international stardom as a full-throttle action hero first in Chinese language pictures and then in American crowd pleasers like Rumble in the Bronx, um, the classic Rush Hour trilogy. I love the Rush Hour trilogy. (laughs) I I think I've seen the second one probably more times than I can count. I owned it on DVD and it just randomly became a family favorite. And I don't even think I had seen the first one. I just went directly to the sequel. It's the Godfather part two of Jackie Chan's (laughs) Chan's filmography. I mean, the bloopers reel or like when they show the studs. Oh my God. I live for that. I love those. They're in every one of his movies. Anyway, (laughs) so the Rush Hour trilogy, as you could tell, we're big fans of. Um, and you know, people, I think his most recent blockbuster was the Karate Kid remake that Jaden Smith was in, um, visionary, visionary, the visionary Jaden Smith. So Jackie Chan became famous because he combined the acrobatic mastery that Bruce Lee had sort of pioneered before him. Um, he combined that with this really like timeless cheeky charm of a true matinee idol in a way. Um, and today he remains one of the hardest working and most easily recognizable entertainers in the world. He is also actually an accomplished director, producer, and singer, as you can probably remember him singing at the Beijing Olympics. Oh yeah, I was there. Melissa was there. So why is this Academy recognition surprising? Well, because in spite of dozens of big hits over the course of a really remarkable career that continues to thrive after 50-plus years in the business, Jackie Chan and his movies have scarcely been recognized by the Academy, um, aside from the Kung Fu Panda franchise, mm. which is an animated perennial. Um, so in all fairness, I, you, can hardly, you can really hardly blame Ampus uh, for failing to honor projects like Shanghai Noon and The Tuxedo. But, you know, even in spite of the quality of these films, Jackie Chan is inarguably a giant of action cinema, and he fully deserves this prestigious acknowledgement. But that being said, his acknowledgement, or rather his selection, does bring to light what I feel has become a recent habit with the Academy's board members when they choose these recipients. Um, So as with Spike Lee last year, and also Harry Belafonte in 2014, I'm beginning to think that the Academy generally likes to honor artists of color for their entire careers when they're honoring them at all, um, you know, in a retrospective way, instead of recognizing and nominating their work when they actually premiere, when they're actually new and um, being seen. So in Harry Belafonte's case, the Academy bestowed him his uh, their Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award for being one of America's foremost activists, um, despite the concurrent film career that he had been, you know, continuing for alongside this. 
Um, you know, he's given worthy performances in films like Carmen Jones, which Dorothy Dandridge was nominated for, um, as well as Robert Altman's Kansas City. But, you know, he's, before the Gene Herschel Award, he was largely ignored by voters, actually entirely ignored by voters. To bring this conversation around back to Asian artists, I feel like there's become an unwritten tenet that really holds true for the Academy these days. Um, and that is, if Ang Lee hasn't made it, it probably does not matter to them. Just yesterday, I believe, um, October 5th, Hollywood Reporter released their annual list of, or you know, their preliminary list of who they think is going to make it right. into the Oscar nominations. Immediately scanned for uh, any Asian people. Just one. Just, just just one, just one main one in like the important categories right, at least. Right, right. Um, the acting categories. Yes, Dev Patel. For Lion. For right. Lion. I like Dev Patel. He seems like a really sweet, charming dude. And now he has uh, the eyes of billions of Asian people right. watching him. All our hopes are pinned on him. I know. He's the great non-white hope yes. for this Oscar season. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I don't know. I know he's being campaigned for supporting actor, even though I think he's apparently in half of his movie. Like, he's playing the lead character, but at a later point in... Uh, yeah, the child is, the like, child. the most... Plays the, the character the most, right. I think. I don't know. I mean, I'm curious. I haven't seen Lion yet, although it did premiere at Toronto, I think. Um, but I am curious to see if he actually is supporting or if he's a lead in this movie, in which case it will be the same thing that happened when Dog Millionaire came out, which is that they pitched him for Best Supporting Actor, even though he is... Clearly. He clearly. Lead. Like, if he is not the lead in that movie, who is? It's uh-huh. just, you know, I, they probably just... They didn't have faith in him to get a Best Actor nomination, and he didn't get a Best Supporting nomination, because I'm pretty sure voters saw through the bullshit. Um, but yeah, I just feel like in terms of Oscar recognition for Asian artists, and artists in color in general, I mean, we complain a lot about how... You know, in the past two years, there have been no actors of color recognized. And it's a really annoying problem. But I think a way to combat this is to, you know, look from the top down, which is start with the directors. Look for the directors of color, you know, who are creating films and branch out. I mean, Ang Lee is not the only Asian director working today. And yet he is one of the only directors who is normally recognized by the Academy. The nice thing is that um, we finally see some effort on the part of the Oscars to change up their voting committee. I know they just added like a bunch of Asians yeah, this year. So. Because of Chris Rock's. Because of Chris Rock's inst- what an, extremely racist. Just an abominable. The results of tonight's Academy Awards have been tabulated by the accounting firm of Price, Waterhouse, and Cooper. They sent us their most dedicated, accurate, and hardworking representatives. So I want you to please welcome Ming Zhu. Bao Ling and David Moskowitz. Now, if anybody's upset about that joke, just tweet about it on your phone that was also made by these kids, okay? Uh, yeah. Like in the year of Oscars So White, like you, let's you make fun of with, Asians. Yeah, like, it, exactly. like Oscars So White does not encompass Asians. Oh God. That was really heartbreaking. I don't know. I think it's, it really is a matter of, you know, branching out and looking where you might not expect. I mean, the director, Apichat Pong, um, makes a film basically, I think, maybe every year or something like that. Oh, really? And he's, yeah, he's, maybe not every year, I'm probably exaggerating, but he's incredibly prolific, and his films are always at Cannes, or always at major festivals, and yet, I, I feel like probably, 
at least 90% of the Academy would not know his name if, you know, asked who he was. But, I mean, you know, he's just one of many. Um, Karen Kusama, who did The Invitation this year. You know, Mira Nar, who did Queen of Katwe, which we'll talk about later. But, I mean, yeah, obviously we can go on naming names. But the point is that, you know, it's... I think it's a, it's a job of the voters to yeah. immerse yourselves in these films and get knowledgeable about directors, you know? Not every... I mean, if you're only looking for the films that are released by the Weinstein Company or Fox Searchlight for artists of color, or specifically, you know, Asian artists... You're going to have a tough time. You're going to have a tough time. It's about branching out and seeing everything that is available within this film year. So, you know, get on it, Academy. We can't pin all our hopes on Dev Patel. Also, fun fact, Merle Oberon, who we chronicled in the second episode of this podcast remains the only Asian woman to be nominated for Best Actress. Merle Oberon, a woman who did not even want to acknowledge her Asian heritage, is the only Asian actor nominated for Best Actress in the entire history of the Academy Awards. There are so many real-life heroes whom cinema has generally ignored within its little more than century-long existence. Perhaps the most egregious exclusions, though, are the early feminist icons. Sure, there are a handful of documentaries about trailblazing movers and shakers like Shirley Chisholm and Gloria Steinem, but fictional treatments remained few and far between. And as for feminism's first wave, well, that's a territory that cinema has still barely traveled to. Contemporary filmmakers would have you believe that first wave feminism was an exclusively Western and white phenomenon. But as anyone with Wi-Fi and access to Wikipedia knows, this just simply isn't the case. The focus of this week's episode is one of the most fascinating and downright fearless feminist figures in Chinese history. However, like most figures in Asian history, particularly women, her legacy remains largely obscure within the West. This is the story of a woman who wriggled free from the roles that time-honored Chinese society had placed her in at birth, and instead, cast herself in not just one new role, but many. This is the immensely inspiring and intensely cinematic story of the heroine known today as China's first feminist, Chu Jin. Chu Jin was born into a conservative, upper-class Chinese family in 1875 and grew up in the city of Shaoxing, her ancestral home. Her family's wealth and position in the Chinese gentry afforded Chu Jin the rare opportunity to receive a quality education during her formative years. At school, Chu Jin showed an immediate talent for writing, specifically poetry. Poetry would become a passion that Chu Jin would foster throughout the rest of her short but groundbreaking life. As a girl, she dreamed of becoming a respected poet and a figure of artistic heroism within her country. Aside from her writing, however, Chu Jin underwent a fairly traditional and sheltered Chinese upbringing that was typical for a girl of her societal standing. Like millions of elite Chinese women, her feet were bound at an early age so as to hinder their growth and maintain their tininess, which was long thought to be an attractive quality for potential suitors. This seemingly paid off when, in 1894, Chu Jin's father arranged for his then 19-year-old daughter to marry Wang Tingjun, the much older son of a well-regarded merchant, thus shattering Chu Jin's fantasies of future literary stardom. The marriage was an unhappy and unloving one. Chu Jin acquiesced to the marital duties expected of her. She bore her husband two children, a son and a daughter. 
and she stayed sequestered indoors and brought up the kids as Binding continued to mutilate her feet. Is it any wonder, then, that Chu Jin quickly found the role of housewife impossibly dull? And so, aboard Chu Jin sought new ideas and experiences. On a trip to Beijing with her husband in 1900, she first came into contact with the Western troops that had been stationed in the city in accordance with the Eight Nation Alliance, following the violence of the Boxer Rebellion. These soldiers profoundly disturbed Chu Jin, who saw their presence as a grim reminder of China's troubling present and an ominous indicator of a future that was likely to be even more disastrous. She felt powerless over her place in a country that was only continuing to lose its way under the oppressive Qing dynasty and the Manchurians who kept it in power. She loved China and longed to salvage its stature. But for Chu Jin, the only way to accomplish this was to, first and foremost, better herself. She began dressing in Western men's clothing. She joined the Triads, the Chinese secret society that advocated returning control to the Chinese by toppling the dynasty that had reigned over China for over two centuries. And she began participating in a women's conversation group led by a Japanese orator named Shigeko Unikichi in Beijing. At one of these first meetings, Shigeko encountered a striking figure, tall, slender, and beautiful, but also oddly androgynous for the times. This figure was clad in a secondhand business suit, carried a man's walking stick, and hid his or her trimmed black hair beneath an unusual blue hunting cap. This was Chu Jin. When asked by Shigeko why she dressed in men's clothes, Chu Jin had this to say. In China, men are strong and women are oppressed because they're supposed to be weak. I want somehow to have a mind as strong as a man's. If I first take on the form of a man, then I think my mind too will eventually become that of a man. After fostering a friendship, Chu Jin sought Shigeko's advice about continuing her studies, perhaps in America. Shigeko indeed encouraged Chu Jin to continue her scholarly pursuits. Not in America, though, but Japan. And so, in July of 1903, Chu Jin unbound her feet sold her dowry, and made the radical decision to leave her husband and children and travel to Japan, where she would begin a series of life-changing studies. Frustrated by women's compliance with a society that indoctrinated them into subservience at a young age, depriving them of their basic human rights and capacities, Chu Jin saw the betterment of women's well-being as the betterment of China's well-being. And from now on, her life would revolve almost entirely around her educational, feminist, and revolutionary interests. She first enrolled at a Japanese language school in Tokyo in 1904, and then later transferred to a girls' practical school run by the famed educator and poet Shimoda Utako. At college, she developed a lifelong fondness for martial arts and swordplay. Physical education was a compulsory component of the school, one that Chujin approached with rigorous discipline and unquestioned dedication. Additionally, in 1904, Chu Jin took charge of the Society for Achieving Mutual Love, a feminist group for female students in Japan that became increasingly prominent under the influence of Chu Jin and journalist Chen Si Fen. Together, the group argued that a woman's virtue lies not in her silence, docility, or sexuality, but rather in her education and intelligence. During Chu Jin's studies, the spirit of the Chinese Revolution continued to spread its influence across Asia and into Japan, emerging in particular within the classroom. 
fearing that her pupils would graduate as traitors and rebels, Shimoda Utako urged them not to participate in any subversive activities. But Chujin refused to abide by her headmistress's warnings. Along with many other like-minded students, she joined a well-known anti-feudal revolutionary society in 1905. And in August of that same year, Chujin became one of the first female members of a new revolutionary alliance led by Sun Yat-sen that drew together various overseas groups into one mighty confederation. Within the alliance, Chujin was put in charge of overseeing China's Zhejiang province and teamed up with her cousin, Xu Xilin, to unite revolutionaries across Japan. She founded and single-handedly ran a journal that used colloquial Chinese to impart revolutionary propagandist ideas. The Vernacular Journal, as it was known, was also the medium where Chu Jin published a landmark manifesto entitled A Respectful Proclamation to China's 200 Million Women Comrades. In it, Chu Jin denounced the repressive traditions of feet-binding and arranged marriages, and she also detailed her belief that the only way to ensure an equal standing between men and women in China was to overthrow the Qing dynasty and adopt a more Western-like government. Chu Jin also adamantly supported an immediate return to China to participate in the ongoing revolution, siding against those who wished to instead remain in Japan and plan for the alliance's future. At one party meeting, in which a decision needed to be made over whether or not to return to China, Chu Jin took control of the debate. She marched up, thrust her dagger into the podium, and declared, If I return to the motherland, surrender to the Manchu barbarians, and deceive the Han people, stab me with this dagger. Well, that seemed to do the trick. In 1906, Chu Jin returned to China with 200 of her fellow students. She taught gymnastics, language, and history at a local girls' school in the Zhejiang province, encouraging her female students to strengthen their mental and physical capabilities. She spoke out openly on behalf of women's rights and joined forces with the female poet Xu Tsitwa to found China Women's News, a progressive women's journal that only published two issues before it was shut down by the authorities. Not deterred by increasing government attention, Chu Jin was appointed head of the Datong School in her hometown of Shaoxing. To the outside world, it was simply an academy for physical education. But inside, the school was really a covert meeting place and training facility for secret societies. In the school, Chu Jin and her fellow associates conducted intense military training for aspiring revolutionaries, ensuring that they would have the required strength to take part in the alliance's schemes and thus develop into active and able comrades. Together, they trained in preparation for an armed uprising in the city of Anqing that she had planned with her cousin Xu Xilin. They aimed for some time in July 1907. However, on July 6th of that year, plans of the revolt were leaked, effectively aborting the mission. Xu Xilin was captured by Chinese authorities after committing an act of terrorism in rebellion. He was tortured and interrogated, and he confessed details of the uprising, upon which he was executed. Not long after that, Chu Jin gained word that she too would soon be arrested. Rather than flee, however, she stood her ground and was detained at the Datong school. She was tortured, but revealed nothing choosing to impart only this poetic phrase. Autumn rain, autumn wind, they make one die of sorrow. Chu Jin was publicly beheaded days later at the age of 32. 
Chu Jin understood that sometimes the strongest form of nationalism entails having the courage to radically disrupt the direction of one's country. By martyring herself, she paid the ultimate human cost to ensure that her imposing life, and even more importantly, her rebellious feminist convictions, would and could not ever be forgotten. And indeed, they haven't. So in positing Chu Jin as an obvious subject for film treatment, I should probably admit that there are already exist three separate projects that chronicle her life and exploits. Two of them are Chinese-made narratives. Uh, there's a simply titled and almost entirely forgotten Chu Jin from 1983. And there's a more recent depiction, The Woman Night of Mirror Lake, which was released around Asia in 2011. There's also Autumn Gem, this independently made documentary whose titles a play on Chu Jin's famous final words. None of these films made a lasting mark on the public consciousness, and all three remain exceedingly difficult to locate, so I won't speak in depth about their respective artistic merits. But from my understanding, they each seem pretty intent on honoring Chu Jin's life within fairly conventional cinematic boundaries, either as glossy fictionalizations or cradle-to-grave biodocs. So, if... You got your wishes and you could make any kind of Chujin biopic you wanted. What would it be? I think I'd really love to see a Chujin biopic that's, um, you know, as radical in its filmmaking as its subject was in literally every single aspect of her life, you know, from her militant ethos to her stance on education. Um, I think in general, there are far too many biopics that are beholden to the task of depicting their subject with uh, the utmost fidelity to the facts. I think it would be exceedingly more intriguing to see a film that sh sort of sharply examines the identity of a woman who spent her entire life uh, transgressing boundaries, both national and political, as well as personal and professional. So I think a film about Chu Jin could, you know, it could really focus on any number of moments within her life. I don't think it needs to necessarily be, as I said before, a cradle-to-grave treatment of every single thing that happened to her as it happened, you know, stick to the facts sort of thing. I mean, there's so many interesting moments in her life. Like, you, you could literally do a film about a day in her life. Yeah. It would be fascinating. You could focus on any single episode of, you know, and she only lived to 32, so I think that's really a testament to how much life she lived. Um, and, you know, I think the point of a biopic, or at least the biopic that I would want to see if Shujin would focus on the essence of her, um, instead of preaching its loyalty to her life as does actually live. You know, I mean, it's an incredibly eventful life, as we said, but there's got to be more creative ways with which to engage with it. Do you have any examples of a biopic that um, would do something like this? I mean, I'm thinking of uh, the new Jackie, Jackie O movie that's coming out soon, oh, yeah. and I'm excited to see that. That definitely comes to mind, but yeah. I mean, I don't know what it's like. I haven't seen it yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great example, even though I haven't seen it, just because its creators are saying they don't want it to be called a biopic. It's more just like a look into a life instead of, you know, because it's not really about, it's not a biography. It's just, it's really a character study. But, you know, I was, I feel like the Chujin biopic I'm talking about, I'm making it sound like this incredibly intellectual exercise, <laughs> examining the identity and the semiotics of Chujin. But, you know, I think a film about her deserves to be as nail-biting a political thriller as any that already exists. So with that in mind, I would say my ideal movie would be a cross between uh, Gailo Pontecorvo's landmark, The Battle of Algiers, one of the greatest movies ever made, and uh, Todd Haynes's I'm Not There. Of course, I mentioned Todd Haynes. I'm going to mention him in every single podcast I tell. 
Um, so I'm not there for those who aren't familiar, although I hope most people are familiar, uh, presents Bob Dylan's life as sort of this really beautiful offbeat carnival in which, you know, six different actors play him. And I'm not saying that I need a Chujin biopic that has six different actors. Like I, <laughs> Emma Stone, yeah. Scarlett Johansson, Tilda Swinton. <laughs> the works. But I think I'm not there in particular. You know, looking away from the casting stunt, what the casting stunt really represents is an understanding that the identities of all major pioneers, whether they're artistically inclined like Bob Dylan or politically motivated like Chu Jin, um, these pioneers, they lived lives that were multitudinous and constantly shifting. And there's no one way to describe them. And I think we need more biopics that are willing to look at all sides of a the human beings that they're portraying. If you could pick a director for this film, who do you think you'd want at the helm? I think I have ultimately settled on my ideal choice um, would be Karen Kusama, who we mentioned earlier, the really talented Japanese-American director who's experiencing right now a career resurgence after being basically being shunned by Hollywood for the lackluster performances of Aeon Flux and Jennifer's Body. I mean, Aeon Flux was taken away from her by Paramount, and yet she got basically tarred and feathered for... Um, you know, just how terrible it was. But yeah, so anyway, I think she would be um, incredibly adept at coupling thematic sophistication with the pure movie thrills of a political thriller. Um, although in truth, I think a great Chu Jin movie could, be, could take any number of shapes from any number of creators and collaborators. So this is a project I would definitely be interested in. Um, and especially because, like you mentioned, um, these early feminists are really discussed in film. And personally, I haven't seen too many feminist films that really impressed me. I mean, the last big one that comes to mind is Suffragette. And I know that film had really good intentions, but it was just so like sanitized and just so not complicated at all. Yeah, I think, I mean, I hope a Chujin biopic were to be made would avoid the traps that... Um Sarah Gavron fell into when making Suffragette. I mean, it's, as you said, incredibly well-intentioned. It's so antiquated in the devices it's using and the uh, plot turns it makes and the archetypes it's relying on. Um, but it's, you know, it was unfortunately all too um, afraid of taking chances, I guess, which is a shame because it had an incredible cast behind it and what a perfect time for this story to be told. So hopefully I think something about Chujin could avoid that, because I feel like a figure as risk-taking as her deserves um, a director who's also willing to break a few rules herself. So, in terms of who would win an Oscar for this biopic, I think, obviously, whoever were to play Chujin would be an automatic Oscar contender if the Oscars, you know, decided to <laughs> recognize Asian. An Asian actress, an Asian lead actress, for a start. In lieu of an Oscar clip this week, um, I have asked Melissa to instead read one of Chujin's poems. Uh, so because Chujin's legacy as a revolutionary feminist agitator is so commanding, much of her artistic output... Um, has been unfortunately lost to history. She wrote throughout her life. She never stopped writing. She, I think, wrote plays as well, or at least scenarios as well. Um, but, you know, they remain pretty scarce because people, when they do remember her, if they remember her at all, only remember her as the revolutionary. These poems are plain spoken and evocative, this one in particular that Melissa's going to read. And I feel like they shed the clearest possible light on Chujin's mindset and why she was so strong-willed and why she fought so tirelessly and sacrificed her own life for the emancipation of Chinese women 
um, and the future of a truly modern China. So uh, without further ado, here is Melissa reading a translation of Chu Jin's Capping Rhymes with Sir Ishi from Sun's Root Land. Don't tell me women are not the stuff of heroes. I alone rode over the East Sea's winds for 10,000 leagues. My poetic thoughts ever expand like a sail between ocean and heaven. I dreamed of your three islands, all gems, all dazzling with moonlight. I grieve to think of the bronze camels, guardians of China lost in thorns. Ashamed? I have done nothing, not one victory to my name. I simply make my war horse sweat. Grieving over my native land hurts my heart. So tell me, how can I spend these days here, a guest enjoying your spring winds? Asian Oscar Bait is hosted by Matthew Wang and Melissa Powers, produced by Caroline Pinto, with music by Rina Minigishi and marketing by Alina Heim. It's recorded in Christ the King Studios, home of the horror anthology podcast Desperate Nightmares from Christ the King, Missouri, now available on iTunes. Come say hi at Asian Oscar Bait on Twitter or at www.asianoscarbait.com where we'll be listing our sources for these histories. And before we end our episode, we'd like to shout out the lovely new Disney drama Queen of Katwe in which Indian director Mira Nair and an all-black cast dramatize this true story of Ugandan chess prodigy Fiona Mutesi. Queen of Katwe is one of this year's most poignant and sincerely inspiring cinematic experiences. Don't miss it. It's really something. See it in theaters now.